as technology use increases, empathy, the core of sales is decreased by 40%. Rehumanizing the sales process is about how do we really connect to another human being? How do we ask questions that get to the core of not how they'll use our product, but who they are as a human and what matters to them emotionally? How do we listen and not just listen to the words like Alexa does, but listen to the emotion behind the words? What's really going on? That's what I see as rehumanizing. It's just doing all the things that Alexa and ChatGPT can't do. This is Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast. Here to help go-to-market leaders do one thing, stop guessing. If you're ready to unlock reality and reach your full potential, then this show is for you. I'm Danny Wasserman, coming to you from the Gong Studios. Howdy, howdy, howdy. We're here, back in the Gong Studios for another weekly episode of Reveal, coming to you as Danny the Rev Wasserman, Wasas Boss, however you want to address me. I'll take every moniker you can throw my way. In the house, we've got an absolute force to be reckoned with, widely recognized as one of the top speakers on the planet, a certainly irresistible, contagious, charismatic LinkedIn voice, and an author of her book, Heart and Cell. We've got the CEO and founder of the Sherry Levitin Group, eponymously named. We have Sherry Levitin. What is she talking to us today about? This idea that we need to, you ready for this? Rehumanize the sales process, insinuating that at one point we've departed from being humans and selling to one another as human beings rather than purely targets of our efforts. She mentions this idea that going back to the biochemistry of how we interact, when you smell someone, the oxytocin that you are picking up that is released, well, I love her line, certain point, this virtual thing isn't going to cut it and we actually got to go smell one another. How refreshing is that? Beyond simply talking about that sales is a privilege, she goes into the training that follows any seller. She breaks it down into four pillars, which are education, entertainment, facilitation, and coaching. What I love so much is that she's really pushing beyond simply all the excitement, the theatrics of entertainment. It's the facilitation and the coaching that matters most because people, well, they retain way more from what they see and what they do than what they're told. Along the way, we're going to hear plenty about how Sherry emphasizes empathy. That being said, it's time for me to shut up. It's time for you to turn up the volume, get cozy, and give Sherry a listen. DJ, spin that. Ladies and gents, an episode of Reveal that has me humbled to my core because sitting across from me, unfortunately not in the same room, but at least a state adjacent to mine, we've got someone who is posting absolutely staggering stats with 61,000 LinkedIn followers, nearly 20,000 subscribers to her newsletter, boasting approximately 70 million downloads annually. We're just getting started with a woman who is advising the leading companies that you all know and love from Adobe to Comcast to Ford to, in fact, the Army, coupled with Microsoft and LinkedIn, 2,500 plus presentations under her belt, clearly impacting well over a million sellers in 40 different countries. And oh, by the way, she describes herself as a mom, a wife, a best-selling writer. And if you've heard of Harvard, yes, she is teaching the course on strategic selling there. 
if you're connecting the dots like I am, it can only be one person, which is none other than Sherry Levitin in the house. Sherry, welcome to Reveal. Wow, that was really something, Danny. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> I I don't know why I'm in this room. It's truly like, uh, it's a David and Goliath story where I'm not sure exactly why they're having me ask questions for someone who has taught the entire course, a masterclass on sales. But needless to say, it is a very special moment to get to pick your brain for the next few minutes. Well, great to be here, Danny. And uh, just listened to your podcast with Guy Raz. That was impressive. Okay. That was super impressive. Sherry, the operative terms that I see in your About Me on LinkedIn splashed all over your website is this notion of humanity. And in particular, right on your homepage, you discuss, we need to rehumanize the sales process, which implies, well, have we departed from being humane in our time as sellers? So talk to us a little bit about how you took that position, where maybe we strayed from the righteous, humane path, and how do we get back there? Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a little secret about how this all came to be is um, I was asked to speak at, at Dreamforce, which I was so humbled because that had yeah. been a bucket list for me. And I'm on the stage with like the guy who invented Einstein or something, right? Yeah. So I figure I'd like brought down the IQ in the room by 20 points the minute I walked in, right? And they were talking about AI and technology and how cool it is and all of these things. And I'm thinking, uh, excuse me, uh, and this was six, seven years ago before we had ChatGPT. And I'm thinking, okay, I do not know that much about AI. I have no idea how to build these engineering systems. I was just sort of overwhelmed. And I thought the only tack I can take, the only thing that makes sense is that I get that there's all these chatbots coming and Alexa's here. And but But really, as sellers and as leaders today, if we're going to connect with our clients and make sales and differentiate, we need to do everything ChatGPT and Alexa can't do. And what are the four things that ChatGPT and Alexa will never do? Because at the end of the day, AI is here now more than ever. I mean, we're all using it, right? We're, you know, Gong's using it, ChatGPT. Everybody's talking about, you know, is, is AI going to replace our jobs? And um, there's a lot of different views on that. But in my mind, we always talk about being a trusted advisor, right? And to be a trusted advisor, you need two things. You need trust and you need advice. Right. If you think about it. And and one of the things that we're seeing in the data, which I find very interesting, is as technology use increases, right, empathy, the core of sales is decreased by 40 percent. This was in Reclaiming the Conversation by Sherry Turkle. So particularly for first generation smartphone users, which are going to comprise our sales staff. Right. So we've got more and more people on tech six to eight hours a day. There's some staggering statistics around this. But what we're finding is the more tech we use, the less empathetic we get. So rehumanizing the sales process is about how do we really connect to another human being? How do we ask questions that get to the core of not how they'll use our product, but who they are as a human and what matters to them emotionally? Because at the end of the day, people still make emotional decisions, even B2B. And how do we listen and not just listen to the words like Alexa does, but listen to the emotion behind the words? What's really going on? How do we build consensus? What's going on? And then how do we take all that information and link it to a brighter future? How do we show value? How do we differentiate? And really, that's what I see as rehumanizing. It's just 
doing all the things that Alexa and ChatGPT can't do. And we can't dispute the ubiquity now of AI and a lot of the arguments you need to, rather than resist the coming of the robots, you need to embrace and harness them. And yet in your last soundbite, I'm thinking, okay, to be a trusted advisor, you engender trust, you have advice to offer, but empathy comes at the expense of adopting more technology. So is this a binary outcome where if you're being told embrace tech, utilize, if not weaponize the power and the efficiencies of AI. But oh, by the way, if you're going to do that, then you're not going to be empathetic anymore. Is it that black and white binary? Or do we find some middle ground, Sherry? It's a great question. Um, I'm going to answer it by by sharing a story with you of an epiphany that I had about that same question. So I'm in Park City, Utah. As you know, we're neighbors. And we host this little thing called the Sundance Film Festival once a year, where 70,000 people emerge on our little town. And this was years ago, prior to the pandemic. And I remember I was walking by my favorite restaurant, Firewood, and there was a line out the door of maybe, I don't know, 60 people. And I know the chef, let's call him Pierre. I I don't remember his name, but I I knew him at the time. Wee wee. Yeah, wee wee. It was Pierre. (laughs) And... I'm sort of, I couldn't believe this. So I go by, I talk to the hostess. I said, Marlena, how are you? I am confused. How in the world are you going to serve and help all of these people? You have one chef. You've got Pierre. What are you going to do? She says, oh, that's easy. We just hired a whole slew of sous chefs. And I had this epiphany where I thought sous chefs are a little like AI. They chop the carrots. They cut the onions. But only Pierre, only the master chef can come out to the table, ask about my aging parents, ask about my son in college. Only Pierre can put the love in the food. Mm-hmm. And it made me think that if you think about it, AI is there to do the repetitive tasks, cut the onions, chop the carrots. But the seller still needs to be the one to ask the questions to uncover the problems, to create the value and put the love in the food. I'm curious with that Pierre story, as you are the Sherry experience for over 25 years as the founder of the Sherry Levitin Group, you are this masterful force of nature and yet you've grown your team. So when you think about in that same example, do you have sous chefs that support you or can you teach people the Sherry je ne sais quoi, the panache, the sort of magic fairy dust that people are so tantalized by, is that transferable? And if not, then do we have single points of failure with the likes of Pierre and the restaurant, with you and the Levitin group? I'm just trying to think if we've got this sort of impasse that we just have to reckon with or if we can somehow, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Scale. Scale is definitely the word. Scale the magic (laughs) because we want to scale the humanity into sales But if you don't have that magic, then is it a futile exercise? Um, You know, it's it. That's not binary, Uh right? Uh, uh, You know, there's not an easy answer there. Um, You know, the way we look at the company is this and the way that we train and coach sellers is we teach in frameworks. Okay, I hate scripts. I, I always joke here. Here's a script. Do you like scripts? Well, 
scripts are great if the customer script sticks to their script, but they never do. Right. Totally. Like, so, so we really need to teach sellers, um, not only what to do, but why to do it. Mm. What's the psychology behind it? What's the why behind the what? And what's the how? So there's sort of the why. And, you know, that's when you can bring in neuroscience and say, hey, this principle doesn't only apply to sales. It applies to life, which is a whole nother conversation, because I believe to sell more, you need to be more. I mean, these are life principles. And if you master life principles, right, then you become a better seller. It's not the other way around. It's not like, oh, let's learn empathy. And then you, you know, go home and yell at your kid like that. That's like you, you have to become more empathetic. And this is at its core why I'm so passionate about sales because, and I think sales is a privilege. It is a privilege because we get paid to serve and we get paid for our own self-development. Let's face it. You know, we need to practice empathy. We need to practice taking objections, handling rejection, all of these things that make us better humans. So with that, the answer to your question is, I mean, the way we run our company is I am the one who does all of the keynotes. So mm -hmm. I will be the one doing the keynotes. But we all know training is a process, not an event. Mm -hmm. And a keynote gets people excited. They start drinking the Kool-Aid. They're like, wow, that was really good. But if you want to have sustainable change, you know, you need to have a culture of learning and development. You need to have facilitation. You need to have coaching and a great coaching platform. And so where we scale is that we have facilitators and coaches. We do have online learning and we teach in frameworks. Mm -hmm. So that's really important because sellers can remember, you know, here's the, you know, five, you know, here's the framework for telling a credible story. Here's the five rules for, you know, overcoming an, an objection. Here's, you know, the four types of discovery questions you need to ask. I just, I'm big on frameworks because I can see that then the training is sustainable and it can be used and adapted over time as products change and as we add more, you know, products, um, you know, within an organization. Amazing. Well, I'm just imagining a Sherry Levitin keynote hosted by Pierre at Firewood between the love of food and again, the force to be reckoned with heads would explode. So let's make sure we get that on the books, but back to the interview. So we're talking about, we need to rehumanize the process. What are some really tactical symptoms that you observe that tells you mm, we are broken, maybe not broken. Maybe that's too strong of a word, but we aren't optimized. So I, the question comes from the standpoint, our listeners want to know, I listen to these experts, but I need tactical takeaways yeah. from this episode. Can you help us? illuminate the usual suspects of you may not be perfectly tuned. Yeah. I mean, and, and one of the things that, that we like to do is sort of do what I call aha learning mm -hmm. um, and, and, and sort of eliminate this, this hindsight bias that sellers have. So um, an example would be, I could just tell you, Oh, we need to lead with empathy and people go, yeah. Okay. Got it. Like, who hasn't heard that? Like, you know, that's not thought leadership. That's a cliche. Like, we know that. So I'll give you two frameworks that we use in Rehumanize that I think um, listeners could get value from. One of them is we'll, we'll start off and you got to have sort of an aha where people have to not learn something new, but unlearn something they thought they knew to really incite change, mm -hmm. which is the same in the training process as it is in the sales process, right? It's the same 
conversation. So what we'll do is we'll say, you know, we all learned in sales 101, there's two things you need in order to make a sale. You need your competency. You need to know your cut. You need to know your product and you need your empathy. You need to know your customer. Which one's more important? If you had to choose one competency or empathy, you only get one. Pick a partner. You have 30 seconds. Pick one. And it's it's really fun. It's about 40, 60. Now, what, what do you think most people say? Competency or empathy? I'm curious. Oh, I'm putting all my money on people would say competency. But if you were to ask me, I think that that's the low-hanging fruit. And that's kind of the trick question that you actually need empathy. But you tell me. Well, it's interesting. It de- I guess it depends what product you're selling. So when okay. we're doing this in tech, you're going to get 70% competency. I need to know all my product lines. I need to know my you know 36 different go-to-market. All right, fine. Um, but it, it, it depends. Depends on the audience. But it can be around 50-50 over time. Okay. And, and then you have people, why do you say competency? Why do you say empathy? Well, the aha there is that there was an article, and I highly recommend it. It's called First Connect and Then Lead by Harvard Business Review. And it says 90% of all persuasion is a combination of both. Hmm. So if you said competency, you're right. If you said empathy, you're also right. Persuasion consists of competency, knowing your product, and empathy, knowing your customer. But here's the trick. The order matters. Hmm. Empathy gets you in the door. It's competency, reliability, integrity that keep you there. Those, to me, are the four pillars of trust. Again, a framework. Now, where this is important and where this is tactical is everybody says, oh, yeah, 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 we knew that. We knew to lead with empathy. But then you say, okay, let's look at all of the places maybe we're not leading with empathy. Example that happens to everybody that's listening to this right now. You connect with somebody on LinkedIn and within 30 seconds, you get an automated, I'm so glad that you're a thought leader and blah, blah, blah. I'd like to share with you our state of the art, da, 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 da. You know, how does this time, you know, go ahead, go to my Calendly link. I've got a nine o'clock or a one o'clock. I'm like, whoa, like there's nothing personalized. You don't know my business. And then I can write back. You know, I love these things when people say, oh, we, you know, we've, we think that, you know, we've looked at your profile. We think you'd be a great coach for this. Oh, what is it about my profile that interests you? Crickets, right? So that would be one example. And so what we would teach people to do is what we've all heard is to do your homework on LinkedIn, for example, before you connect with somebody. But there's a five-step process for doing that, right? Which would be what in order, what is most important in order when you are going through that process, you know, what is the highest way to connect with another human, mm. right? So, for example, saying, oh, you lived in Colorado, so did I, is much lower on the totem pole than, hey, Danny, I listened to that interview with Guy Raz. You kick butt, man. Like, that shows I put in more time than, yep, check the box. He went to, you know, he lives in Colorado. That's a higher way of doing that. Um, we would look at, um, you know, how they are doing their appointments, are they doing their appointments um, in the customer's time zone or in their time zone? Because that's leading with empathy. There's like a checklist of 20 things of how one would lead with empathy, right? But that would be an example of something quite tactical that we would talk about. When you talk about even this framework that is repeatable, that is scalable, I even think about, okay, there are higher orders of human connectivity and the details you can extrapolate from a LinkedIn profile. The baseline being, ah, yes, your geographic location. 
there's the scientific approach to doing that research ahead of time. But even still, there's the artistic delivery in yeah. your awareness. Okay, Danny did this interview, but even in your tonality and your body language, talk to us about how you even instruct the artistic dimension to empathy, because that is inherently subjective. That is relative to the individual and how you convey empathy and how I convey empathy. They may not be carbon copies of one another. Can we give creative liberties to the people that study underneath your methodology? Or is there, in fact, a silver bullet or a magic pill that someone can take back? Ah, yes, I know the five-step formula. And thanks to Sherry, I now communicate in a more empathetic way. Well, I know the five-step formula, and sometimes I'm not empathetic, so I don't think it's like, yep, I know that. I mean, come on. It depends how much I slept. Am I irritated with my yeah. teenager? You know, like all of these things weigh in, right? I mean, we mm -hmm. know this. Um, I do think there's um, – I, I think the bigger question might be can people learn empathy who aren't? Because if you are naturally an empathetic person – you're going to feel it, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to look at you. I'm going to care. I'm going to be curious, right? There's going to be these things that happen. But I think the bigger question is, can we teach empathy? Yeah. Um, and that's, I think, the trick question. Um, Chris Voss had a great new podcast. I thought it was fascinating. And he coined a term. I wished I had coined it, but I did not. Um, called tactical empathy. And I find it fascinating because... I love the idea, um, and, and this gets very philosophical, I think Prager said this, to, to be fair, is that if you do, usually feelings create actions, right? Like if I'm feeling empathetic, I'm going to be empathetic. But actions create feelings too, mm -hmm. which is the converse of that, right? And Prager talks about this um, when it comes to religion. Like if I do these acts then I will be more religious. I will believe more, which is an interesting concept in and of itself. But I believe that if we practice empathetic things and we act like we're empathetic, <laughs> tell me more, you know, what's that like for you? That we actually become more empathetic. Mm -hmm. So we have to start with this tactical empathy. Perfect. I think inherently, and even those questions, tell me more why there is, not just a performative curiosity, but there is an authentic curiosity. And that's another word that when people talk about I don't know, experiencing the Sherry keynote or they talk about what separates you is that there is this authenticity that you cannot really turn off because that's just who you are. It, it oozes through every fiber in your being. And that leads me to my next question, which is how are you engendering trust, right? You wanted to be this trusted advisor when you became a seller, and conveying that you have the advice to qualify as an advisor, maybe comes with competency. What are ways that you have seen, whether it's in your frameworks or even in your experience advising leaders and sellers alike, what are the best ways that we can build trust, particularly at a time where we're not as face-to-face -face as we once were? We're now hybrid yeah. at best, but some of us may always remain remote moving forward. Yeah, no, there's no question about it. And, um, Here's a here's an interesting statistic. I just heard this and I thought it was hilarious. There's actually um, neuroscience behind why it's harder to build trust on Zoom or Teams, because you would think, well, I can see them. Uh, I get the tonality, you, you know, da, 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 da. Like, why is it so much harder? And it actually is pretty interesting and counterintuitive. It's because of the sense of smell. Whoa. So 
if you and I, hopefully one day, you and I will have a cup of coffee or go on a hike together or uh, whatever one day, and we start liking each other more and more and we're face to face, we actually start emitting oxytocin into the air. Okay. And oxytocin, uh, we get oxytocin through the navel, nasal cavity. And oxytocin is the trust hormone. Hmm. So what researchers have found is that if you get somebody to inhale or sniff oxytocin, they not only trust you more, they'll spend more money. Okay. So I just, I, I find that interesting. Like, why is it so much harder to build trust when you're not face to face? And now I guess if you can get somebody to stick something up their nose, they already trust you. Right. But that's a whole nother <laughs> thing. But, but I guess that the point I'm trying to make is that yes, it is harder to build trust virtually. I would encourage anybody listening to this, running a team, you really want to map out when do you want them hybrid and when don't you, mm -hmm. because it is better face to face. Yes. 86% of consumers today prefer a virtual experience. Yes. Sellers would rather do it from home. But as you're looking through your pipeline, there's times when you need to show up and sniff each other. So I just, I wanted to get that out. Um, the, the big differences that I believe that are happening in a virtual world, there's, I see three major differences. Now, when you talk about building trust, number one, and I alluded to this before, if you want to build trust, uh, you gotta, you have to establish what I call virtual presence. Okay. And that means, you know, I actually cleaned my background before I talked to you. Now, the other part of my office, you don't even want to look at. Like, it's a mess, right? But but it's this is subconscious. If I have a messy background, I look terrible. The lighting, the microphone, the whole thing. And yet still a lot of sellers, like, they're dark and it looks like that. And, I mean, there's like, you know, we made a spoof video once of everything you could ever do wrong, which is kind of hilarious. You know, the, the eyebrows that are on the file box because they get the girl did the eyebrows, all that. But, but so that's number one. It's this idea of virtual presence. Number two, did you do your homework? Mm -hmm. You know, you can't just like the old days, start doing discovery questions like, oh, what keeps you up at night? You know, like I have to know something about you before. Um, some of the other differences, I'm going to take this further in addition to trust that are different virtually um, because we do a lot of master classes on um, how to move from a live to a hybrid world, yeah. which has been a big, obviously big thing in the last four years. Um, the other thing that's really different is time. So let's unpack that for a minute. So if you're my um, client or, or, I, or you're a prospect and I come to Denver and we meet for lunch, that lunch could go from 45 minutes to an hour to an hour and a half to, hey, let's go back with the office. Let me introduce you to some of the other stakeholders to the, hey, can you send us over a proposal? Like there's more serendipity, right? Time is a little bit more fluid. Once we're in a virtual environment, like Zoom doesn't, like you have to create a Zoom call in half an hour increments, 45, like people are back to back. Like you, you have to really plan better what you're going to do in that sales call because you have limited time and you may have the decision maker, oh, I can only stay for 10 minutes and then what are you going to do? So you have to understand that time is much more fluid. Mm -hmm. Um, in a live environment, and it's much more um, specific uh, in a virtual environment. And then you have the whole shift about access, right? So the good news is it's probably easier to access stakeholders yeah. um, because if they are in different places, we can get all the stakeholders we need um, on that call. Um, but it is a little more tricky to keep engagement 
in a sales call. So you've got to plan. I cannot emphasize this enough. If you do this demo where you're droning on and on and the customer's not interacting, and I mean, we have them interact on chat. We have them do polls. Like we make it fun because you've got to keep engagement. And this is especially true when training. Yeah. Like training virtually, it's a different world. And you can make it fun and you can still use the five senses, but you've got to plan that. You've got to practice that. Well, when you talk about oxytocin and meeting each other to <laughs> sniff one another consensually, of course, you know, the stat that also flies in the face of that possibility is how many buyers actually prefer virtual now. Like, I'm too busy. I don't care to go break bread with you. I've got other things. In fact, my entire weekly calendar is now in these 30-minute blocks. So there's so many forces that work against yeah. really unlocking and capitalizing on this biochemical reaction. Are there stop gaps? You know, we talk so much now about how do you personalize your prospecting? Do you send them? I'm even thinking with the aromas of chocolate chip cookies. You don't smell me, but if I send you because I know, oh, I did yes. some diligence – and I'm sending you something that I notice. hey, you're really into baking. So that's going to allow me to rise above the noise. Talk to us tactically. Does that work? Does that seem phony? Does it even get a little creepy? I love it. I, I got to tell you, I have a friend. She's one of the top sellers at Salesforce. Yeah. And she is so good with that. I mean, handwritten notes, playlists. Um, <laughs> I will tell you, this was back in the old days. But I got my first seven-figure deal by literally sending a pizza with a poem attached. Because in the, at the end of the day, here's what I believe. What, it all comes down to this. We've got to stand out and differentiate, right? Because it's hard for our clients to differentiate our products, mm -hmm. right? Like, oh, you've got voice-activated software. So do these other 18 companies. You've got video software. Like, we know that we're better, but it's hard to communicate that. And I think that... Um, you don't always have to be better, but you do have to be different, right? You have to be different. And, and I, I think it's lovely. I mean, when I get, you, you know, something in the mail in snail mail, we, we want to use this omni-channel approach, right? Like, so you're going to, and this is huge today too, when you're selling virtually, um, it's not just that 60 minute or 30 minute demo call. It's, do you connect with them on LinkedIn before? Do you start sharing their posts? Like if it's a big enough deal, you know, do you, um, you know, do you send them something in snail mail? Yeah. You know, all of these things matter because it, today it's more about the buying process than selling process. Right. So we need to go where they are. Mm -hmm. Talk to so me I love bit. cookies. Send me Great. cookies. I'd be Perfect. psyched. Chocolate chips coming straight to Park cookies. City. Cookies. Great. Cookies. Well, you just delineate between the buying process and the selling process. I don't want to glaze over that detail. If I'm understanding you correctly, there is a distinction. Can you unpack or demystify what's different between the two? Well, you know, come on. As sellers, you know, we're so focused on our CRM. Okay, this is the next stage. This is the next stage. This is the mm -hmm. next stage. Um, you know, I during the pandemic, um, I, I joked that everybody was buying pandemic puppies and I decided to get a pandemic Porsche. Because I I had always wanted a a nice Porsche and I old enough I deserve it so um, I uh, th there were two dealerships um, one was like forty minutes away the other was two hours away okay right so I did what everybody does and I I called the first guy and I said hey can you you know give me a little bit of your pricing um, on these three cars and he says well you got to come into the shop and test drive it I'm like not coming to the shop we're in the middle of a pandemic. 
So I, I hang up, I call the other shop and I get this guy, Sean. And Sean gets on the line. And this is an example of thinking about the buying process. And I said, Sean, can you tell me prices on, on these three vehicles? He says, well, why don't we jump on a Zoom call? I'm like, oh, okay, sure. And now it's like, we're designing the car, you know, cause I wanted like white with beige interior, kind of hard to find. Da, da, da. He says, I'm on it, I'm on it. The next day, Literally, he connects with me on LinkedIn, starts sharing my videos. I'm like, oh, that was cool, right? So it's this omni-channel, uh-huh. right, coming to where I am. And then I get a brochure in snail mail, like three days later. And then two weeks, like, because I kind of go dark. It's not like I need a Porsche, right? Two weeks later, he sends me a video text of the exact car that we designed coming off the trailer, like wrapped up like a present. And he says, Ooh, can you smell the leather? Like, Ooh, look at that interior. Ooh, look at the steering wheel. Oh, well, listen to the sound system. And he's like, Hey, if you come, if you come over later today, we're serving chili. Oh my God. Go down by the car. Oxytocin. Exactly. So this is exactly you. No one's ever said it that way. You're right. So what he did is the first several phases or steps or stages of the sales process, it all happened virtually through an omni-channel approach, right? It happened through social media that he was coming to where I was. He wasn't just, well, I emailed her and she didn't call back. Oh, boss, I left a message. Like, this is what you hear sellers do, right? Like, yeah. I left a message. I, I called him 10 times. Look, you did you go around through on top of like, like take some, you know, be creative, Right. This guy was creative. Right. Right. So he not only sells the car. Yes, I got the car that day. Um, But, you know, um, now I'm a customer for life. You know, I'm just I'm a customer for life. Empathy gets you in the door, but it's competency, reliability and integrity that keep you there. So how would salespeople know this? They weren't actually coached to build relationships that stick. Simply going in with the mindset, well, I'm here to understand my customers' needs and help them achieve their goals, that's not going to cut it. According to LinkedIn Sales Navigator, only 17% of buyers say they want to interact with a salesperson who's only interested in making a deal. Personalization matters, folks. Empathy matters, people. Not just the sale itself, which is evident from another study from Sales Navigator, which found 84% of buyers claim it's important to them to feel like they are building a personal relationship with their seller. Like we said earlier, most salespeople won't know that innately, which is why coaching plays a huge role in their success. One final study from Sales Navigator found that salespeople who receive continuous training are 50% more likely to achieve their sales goals. This is another reminder. Training a sales rep is not just a point in time, but is this never ending journey. You really want to double down on that long-term consistency rather than indexing for a short-term one and done moment of intensity. Let's get back to sharing here more. So I want to talk about when we say an enablement, which is my team and department, there's got to be the sizzle and there's got to be the steak. And I think about your world, the sizzle is the keynote. There is theatrical performances. People are jacked up. You shoot them up in the arm. They're fired up. They leave that. I'm going to do everything Sherry tells me. In your case with Sean, he sends you these videos. Smell the leather. We got chill. Like all of your, <laughs> all of your senses are being stimulated. Yes. 
And then after the keynote or after you buy the car, after we roll out of training, the less fun, dare I even say at times the agonizing, the not so sexy part of the post rollout period is the reinforcement and the coaching, the ongoing training to not make this a one and done moment in time to make this a journey and a process. How do you, after this surge in endorphins from whether it's the car buying, whether it's the keynote, the rollout of something new at a kickoff, how do you maintain that in an exercise that is unquestionably less thrilling, less sexy, less fun? Oh, I think the rest is sexy and fun. I just think that, um, you know, we have to understand that um, my favorite John Maxwell quote is training is a process, not an event. Right. It, it's not something you did. It's something you do. And as leaders, we need to build a culture of learning and development. But actually, that's probably the most important thing we can do. I see you have Carol Dweck's book on your shelf there. And Carol Dweck talks about the difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. Mm-hmm. And that more important than anything, when hiring, when staffing, you, you've got to hire people, not just that know your product or know your industry, but that have a growth mindset because you're going to have new products. You're going to have new services. The market's going to change. Hello. COVID's going to happen. Hello. So we have to hire people that have a growth mindset that see learning as a challenge and as growth. And, and that requires having a whole culture of learning and development. And so one of the things we talk about at Leviton Group, another framework is, and we actually have a whole masterclass in this, is that to really retain information, we have to have, there's four pillars of an effective training and coaching program. Mm-hmm. And I think the problem that a lot of organizations face is they think of training as sort of this one and done. And you know, being an enablement, it's like, okay, went through the onboarding training, we're done. Yeah. And what's worse, and I find even in Fortune 500 companies, it shocks me. You know, big, fancy named companies, they will go through a three to four week onboarding process about product knowledge only. And then they wonder why the seller is giving the customer way too much information to make a decision. Because here's the deal. What happens in the training process, the strategy and intensity put into the training process will be duplicated by your sellers in the sales process. So if all you're doing is a product knowledge job, all they're going to do is a product knowledge job. If all you do is go by the cubicle and go, how's your quota? And you don't listen and get to know the human, getting back to the human, Guess what they're going to do with their customers? Hey, here's the product you need. Like, and then they wonder why, right? It's monkey see, monkey do. So these these four pillars um, we find, and there's probably other frame, many other frameworks. It's just something we use that we developed years ago. There's four pillars to an effective training and coaching program that produces an ROI. But here's the interesting thing. Most trainers, most enablement professionals lead with one of the four pillars. They're like legs of a chair. You need all four. So if somebody leads with one pillar, they better learn to incorporate the other three or at least create alliances with other people in the organization. So the four pillars, and we actually have a quiz on this um, so people can assess their dominant pillar. So the first pillar, probably obvious, is education. Mm -hmm. So people that lead with the education pillar love to create content, um, they realize they need to be in micro learning. They, um, you, you know, create great concepts. They build that culture of learning and development. They love assessments. They love important. You've got to have good content, but like that's the basis, right? But then you have people 
that lead with the entertainment pillar. Mm. Mm-hmm. The entertainment pillar are the people that tell stories, use the five senses, create emotional connection. I think I know what pillar you lead with, Danny. They're people that are just so captivating and charismatic. And there are people that you go, whoa, that was exciting because you're opening up the learning centers of the brain with entertainment because people feel good. It's not that they feel good about the training. They actually feel better about themselves. You're actually creating a safe place. You're creating community amongst even virtually all the people that are in the course. You're using stories. You're using games, contests, magic, whatever. But where the rubber meets the road is in the second two pillars because that's where the real learning takes place. In fact, research shows 70% of the learning takes place in the last two pillars. So if you just have a one and done keynote, that can be fine. You may just want to entertain and motivate and reward yourself. That's fine. But if you really want to have lasting impact and you really want your sellers to learn a new skill and apply that new skill to win deals on a consistent basis, you've got to have facilitation and coaching. Mm -hmm. And so facilitation is just like it sounds. It's um, letting them interact with it. There's a saying we use, people don't believe it when we say it, they believe it when they say it. Right. People only retain 10 adult learning theory. People only retain 10 percent of what they hear, but 90 percent of what they say and do. So we need and and you can do this virtually. This isn't all live. So rather than just saying, hey, um, go listen to that online module, it would be after you listen to that online module, teach it. Mm -hmm. Or um, after you do that online module, I want you to answer these five questions or um, I want you to, you know, or it's about listening, having other people listen to the call recording. So we may have a deal recording and I'll get to coaching in a minute, but we could have everybody listen to that recording and give them a scorecard of whatever methodology you're using and how did they do. And that's, um, that's going to be more facilitative case studies. Uh, you can have people do skits. You can have them make models. We've had rap songs because people learn differently, mm-hmm. but it's, making the content their own and integrating it into their sales process. And then finally, and what's talked about most today is the coaching pillar Mm. and the coaching pillar, because the first three pillars are the one to many and that's great. And that creates community and it creates bonds and it helps people in a hybrid world to connect to each other. But at the end of the day, it's that one-on-one coaching because what motivates you is what difference than motivates Janice, it's different than what motivates Donna. And if I'm a real leader, I need to understand your inner world so I can affect your outer world. It's not just about coaching the call, although that's huge, but it's about understanding what you want, understanding what motivates you as a human and helping you get it. And it's never money. It's what they can do with the money. So it's finding out like, what matters to Danny? You know, is it food? Is it his kids? Is it his athleticism, whatever that can be. And coaching is also then, yes, using a product like Gong, for example, and going through that call report and having some kind of a scorecard and a mechanism to coach that salesperson to help them enhance their particular skill set. But in all my years, and I'm sure there's other methodologies, but if you want real ROI, you need all four. You can't just entertain them. I'm thinking about what I was saying before with the sizzle and the steak. It takes me to two quotes, which seem to almost transcend the four legs. And keep me honest here, but the first is the Maya Angelou quote, which is, 
people won't remember what you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel is what I was thinking as I'm hearing about the four legs. The other one, it comes from a CRO who we've had on the podcast who said, people don't care what you know until they know how much you care. And I think that really speaks to, are you connecting with Danny, the seller on a deeper level beyond his ambition to hit quota, but what actually is that higher order of humanity, what's really tugging at his heartstrings? Is that a fair application to what is it you're describing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I want to close with two questions. I'll hit you with the first one, which is more about how you started the Sherry Levitin group 25 years ago, which is that in your LinkedIn, there is this unbelievable story where you're in the Colorado living room and the prompt is you win 35 million. What do you do? Tell us how the rest of the experience unfolded. Cause I, I find it so inspiring that you are living proof that pursuing your dreams can be possible, but I don't want to, it, it was your story. So I'll shut up. <laughs> no, I mean, um, I was a sales manager, sales director at a pretty young age. Um, and I love training and development. I have since I was six. I'm the one who put on the puppet shows and the magic shows. And, yeah. you know, and, but it wasn't just, just the entertainment. It was really developing people uh, in a transformation. And we were all talking about what we'd do if we won the lottery. And one gal, Lisa, says, oh, I get a really cool apartment in New York and get fancy clothes. And this guy, Mark, says, ah, I'd start an outdoor company and I'd like go up Nepal and I'd you know, have all these outdoor adventures. And then everybody looks at me and they said, what would you do? I'm like, I'd start a training company and I'd bring in guest speakers and I'd help people not only sell more, but be more. And I'd have wellness and I'd have, you know, uh, you know, things on communication and training and, and like, people are looking at me going, okay, you're just sick. <laughs> like, that's not cool. <laughs> and, um, fortunately a gentleman named Peter Williams, who lived in Colorado put his arm around me after. And he said, you know, you don't have to win the lottery to do that. You can do that right now. And I just remember thinking, Oh my God, this is like, this is what I want to do more than anything in the world. And I could do this. And then, you know, it was really scary making that jump from sales leadership to, okay, I'm going to take the little savings I have. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put it all into starting a company. It was 1997. And I thought, okay, let's jump off the cliff. And I just, I feel like um, there's got to be something in you that loves what you do so much, but that also knows the reality. You're not going to love 100% of it. And I think that's really hard because people go, oh, I'm looking for my why. I want to be that. It's not, there's a lot of discipline, right, in, in being a seller, in being a leader. And you're not going to like everything. But at its core, it's got to, like, resonate with you at a very deep level, what you're doing and why you're doing it. Gives me the goosebumps. Wow. Well, as a listener of the podcast, you know that for anyone that passes through the Gong Studios, we do ask every guest the same last question. So this shouldn't come as a surprise or an ambush. But Sherry, if you could describe sales in just one word, what would it be? What came to me immediately was transformation. That's the word that comes because that encompasses change and sales is about making change have it helping the customer to change, but it's also about transforming somebody's beliefs 
but it starts with transforming your own. It starts with transforming yourself. It's like I said at the beginning, I believe, again, selling is a privilege and we have to constantly improve and get better and have a growth mindset ourselves. We have to be constantly learning and growing and restraining, you know, having more patience, having more empathy, um, learning not to let the emotional stuff get in the way. And these are life skills. So to me, Selling's really about transformation, both in ourselves and with our customer. Love it. Well, if people want to learn more about empathy and oxytocin and the four pillars, <laughs> should they go to your book, Heart and Sell? How can they get a hold of you? Yeah, I mean, certainly you can buy my book on Amazon, Heart and Sell. Um, I do post every single day on LinkedIn. They're free videos and Instagram. Uh, so feel free to follow me there. And if you want to contact us, just go to sherrylevitin.com uh, and you can find out about our keynotes and our four pillars courses and everything else. Amazing. Well, on behalf of the whole reveal team, this has been an embarrassment of riches when it comes to you talking about what constitutes being <laughs> successful in the profession that we have all chosen. And I know I can speak personally that I'm taking a ton away from this from truly a, a woman who needs no introduction, but an exhaustive dossier of crowning achievements that any of us would be lucky to even experience a fraction of this is sherry levitin the ceo and founder of the sherry levitin group sherry this has been an absolute blast thanks so much thank you danny it's been my pleasure thanks so much for listening to this episode of reveal if you want more resources on how revenue intelligence can help you create high performing sales teams then head on over to gong.io and if you like what you heard well come on give us that five-star review on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you may listen